All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, joined as usual by my friend and producer that should never sound rote. It should always sound filled with feeling because it is filled with feeling. <laughs> and saying it my, <laughs> makes my it more My friend <laughs> and producer. <laughs> trying to figure out how to say producer in a like mushy, emotional way. My producer. <laughs> Has anyone ever said producer in an emotional way? I don't know. <laughs> I have no, it's like thanking no. your lawyer at the uh, awards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. Man. Okay. My friend and my producer, Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, it's, uh, it's actually getting... Uh, kind of warm in my studio for the first time because uh oh nice it's nice out yeah and uh we're back yeah we're back yep we, we, had, we had a little, yeah. couple schedule things and uh a little yep. delay in uh releasing this episode but we have yes it. we've got it in the can we've got <laughs> it in the can it, it we really it sounds like it's in the can yeah strange, uh, yes, right? it, um, it does a little bit yes <laughs> <laughs> And that is because so we had some we schedule scheduled. changes and location changes. Yeah. And uh, so the audio quality might not be what you're used to, but it is actually uh, perfectly listenable and uh, a very lovely episode. Yeah, it's a great episode. It's a conversation with the Mac book designer, Morgan Crowcroft Brown, who I think is just absolutely brilliant. I'm a huge fan of hers mm -hmm. and I really wanted to talk to her. Um, so she's great and the episode is filled with really amazing bits of information on on photo book making and it does sound a little bit like we put morgan in a uh in a tin box but but we didn't um we love our guests but it's a really great conversation so just bear with the, the audio yes but it was it was fun right did oh. you learn anything oh my god yes absolutely First, uh, I was surprised by uh, Morgan's background and, and the world she comes out of, yeah. which was great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. I was surprised too. Yeah. Uh, I know. I think, I think you may have asked like several times <laughs> just to make sure you heard it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also... Um, you have a fantastically nerdy and technical conversation about bookmaking and being on yeah. press and all. And yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think there was a, a, a really interesting conversation about varnish at the end there. <laughs> yeah, I love varnish. Um, yeah, I mean, I realize, you know, a lot of people just look, the right now in our world, photo bookmaking is it, right? Exactly, so yes. I feel like... There's so many things people don't know about, you know, uncoated paper versus coated paper and and yeah. what the specialties are of different printing houses and and what yeah, and what a varnish is and anyway, et cetera, et cetera. And so we we got into it. And absolutely. You know, not of course we also talked about, you know, working with artists and the different roles that people play. Mm -hmm. Um at a place like Mac and in putting books together. The and, role of the designer, um, all of that, yes. Yep, yep. Yep. 
but decided to also take a detour down <laughs> yes wonky uh, bookmaking lane. And I had a great time talking with, with Morgan. So. Yes. Yeah, you could tell. Yep. All right. Well, why don't we get to it then? If you don't mind, Michael, uh, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Morgan Crowcroft Brown. Morgan Crowcroft Brown, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. Thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for having me. We had a little, we had some hiccups. I got sick, and you're very jet setty. Um, but I think, are you in London? I am in London now. Yeah, okay. I got back from Italy last uh, Wednesday. But yes, I'm constantly traveling to different parts of Europe for for my job. So, which is great fun, but sometimes hard to schedule in meetings and life around yep. it. Of course. Um, I think at one point when we were going to record, you were in Italy, and then then next you were in Germany, and anyway, yeah. then I got sick, and now you're in um now you're in London. But so um, you're a designer for MacBooks, and and can't wait to talk about what that means. But um, why don't you give us a little bit of your your bio, where you're from, and how you got into this this line of work. Yeah, it's kind of a strange story or a whirlwind story. So I'm originally from Sydney, Australia. I think I've lost my accent, but I'd like to think it sometimes appears. Um, And I applied for an internship at Mac uh, five years ago, almost exactly, while I was uh, finished studying and I was kind of just looking for something to do, essentially. I'd never been to Europe before, and I saw this three-month internship come up at Mac, and I applied. I I got a call back, and then, yeah, I was sort of set up that I'd come across for a three-month internship. I sort of had planned to do a whole year of it and do an internship, then travel around Europe for six months, kind of this very naive, you know, year-long trip away. Um, And then... Arrived in London, didn't know anyone, hadn't been here before, and uh, started working. And within three weeks, within my first month of starting, uh, Michael Mack um, offered me a full-time position uh, as a general publishing assistant, uh, which I then did for the next six months. Uh, And then that turned into the full-time designer and production manager at Mack, and I've been in that position ever since. So that's how I ended up in this job, which is quite strange to think about. Well, it's very whirlwindy. Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange to, to, to talk about it sometimes because it, it, you know, sitting on the other side of five years of that, it, it feels impossible that I could have done what I do now with that level of knowledge. I came with nothing. It's sort of very strange to think about. I don't know. Well, you were studying design you had gotten a degree in design back in Australia? No, actually, I did a degree in international and global studies with a major in anthropology. (laughs) Um, So I have no design experience or no design background. Oh, my God. Yeah, which is even more crazy. I had been working in bookshops. (laughs) Yeah, I'd been working in bookshops since I was six. Uh, 15 and a half I think and um, I'd sort of been doing that part-time while studying and and that's how I kind of applied for a job at Mac um, through that background and then 
coming to Mac and sort of as an intern doing different various tasks, then found a real love for actually for photo retouching. And then from there, it kind of developed into the design as well, which is very strange. Okay, so I didn't know any of this. And I have to say, (laughs) I'm so shocked. I'm so genuinely shocked because, you know, you're one of my favorite designers. And I, I just cannot believe that you didn't study design. I mean, your design sense is so refined, it seems to me, and so <laughs> sophisticated and just really so brilliant and intuitive. And so to find out that, God, this is just... Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my it's God. It's crazy to hear you say that as well, because I don't think, obviously, I don't think of it like that. I, I think I just, I think Michael... Obviously, when I started out, I knew nothing. So he took me under his wing and sort of taught me, not the rules, but just his his aesthetic. And mm-hmm. from that, I think I learned a lot and then have added my own aesthetic with that. And it's actually interesting that almost, I think almost all the designers who have ever, work, ever worked at Mac haven't had a design degree. There's Lewis Chaplin um, before me, and he also studied anthropology. So <laughs> he now runs Loose Joints and based in Marseille. So... I think sometimes these things don't require, you know, degrees and yeah, it's interesting. No, especially if you have a tremendous amount of natural ability and someone willing to teach you and yeah. someone who recognizes that as well. Exactly. I mean, you know, I always think that there's people, you know, all of us are walking around with, you know, abilities and talents that we probably don't even know we have because they haven't been yet connected to something specific. Mm -hmm. Um, But does this feel like, and this is almost a question I would ask someone at the end of an interview, but I can't (laughs) help ask you now. I mean, does, does this feel like really satisfying life doing this, this work? Yeah, I think, I think with many things that are so project-based, the satisfaction comes afterwards when you look back and you or you hold the object in your hand or you look at the design or you look at the printing or uh, the satisfaction comes then. I think sometimes during it, you go, why am I doing this? But then <laughs> at the end, when you look back and you sort of see everything you've accomplished, yes, it, it does feel satisfying. It also feels often sort of slightly fraudulent that I don't that I haven't earned this or I haven't, don't deserve that position. I, 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 even though I'm five years into this, it still feels like I, I, I'm not qualified to be a designer <laughs> or I'm not qualified to do that. And I think that will probably plague me for a while. I don't, I think that's where it just comes from not having that um, authoritative background that we're told mm-hmm. that we're meant to have in this kind of industry. Mm-hmm. I also come from a family or of, of not... Uh, no artistic background whatsoever. I didn't study art at all in high school. My parents are not interested in art. They sort of don't really understand what I do. And and that's also kind of something that makes it feel like I'm living in a dream slightly or I'm living in a different alternative universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a strange feeling for sure. So let's, let's get into the sort of nitty-gritty of um, (laughs) how it all happens, because I know people don't know that and um, are always really curious. You know, my last guest was Jess Dugan, and I know Jess loved working with you, and and Jess's book is so... 
I think, very special and really just a beautiful, beautiful object. So we could use Jess as an example, but we could mm-hmm. use, it's up to you, you could use any any example. I mean, I, I often talk about Ray Meek's Cyprian <laughs> Honey Cathedral is a book I really love. But why don't you, you, you choose, but how does a project What's what are the steps of something arriving and and how how does it arrive and get made? So all of them come to Mac as various different at, at very various different stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, some photographers or artists prefer to just send uh, images and ask us to sequence them, and Michael will work quite closely with the artist to sort of build the sequence. Other times it will come across like. Uh, as a PDF, so that was the case with Jess and also with Ray Meeks, that they both sort of came as PDFs that then we were able to work with. And I think, yeah, from there what we do is kind of try and understand the logic that the artist has used to put together that PDF right? and then understand where we can make it, elevate it slightly or make it even better. I think when working with artists... We're all on the same team. We're all trying to get to that same endpoint of creating a beautiful object. And so it's always a collaboration. And I think sometimes you can get bogged down in, in thinking of it as a as something different maybe. But I think, yeah, you always want that, that the artist's sensibility to show through in the book. It's not a Mac book. It's Mac and the artist. Or it's, you know, it, or it's not the designer's voice that's showing through. It's it's the artist. That's the, that's the point of it all. So then with Jess's book... And with Ray's book, I think both of them kind of fall into that same category of we take the images and we take the PDF and understand maybe to build a grid around it or to build some kind of design logic, I guess. <laughs> and then if there are text elements to understand how to play with that. Um, and then once that's agreed with and the artist's happy and we've sort of designed the cover, we think about materiality and how that will interplay with the design. So choosing something that's a very soft and uncoated paper or something coated that will give it a glossy finish. And then after that, we think about the printing and and what kind of sensibility is needed there. So with Jess's book, we chose something that was a very sort of uh, lightly coated stock. And when talking about the printing, we wanted something very clean and very kind of yeah, very clean, open, and let the images sort of speak for themselves. Nothing too, nothing with a thick, heavy varnish, nothing with uh, too heavy. I think that was the key. And it kind of kept this lightness going through the book. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then the last stage, yeah, the binding, I guess, is the other factor. If it's hardcover or paperback or if it has some kind of jacket or if the text is embossed on the front, all these little decisions sort of then change how you read it and how you hold it in your hands and if it feels really heavy or if it feels very light and flexible and malleable and sort of all of these factors, which are the parts that I think I really love. I love about book design is that it isn't just about graphics. It's about how objects feel and how objects are read. One of the main aspects to photo book design, it seems to me, is the determination of the scale of each image in the book. So not just placement, but also size. I would think that this would be something that you and Michael Mack and the artist could really spend a lot of time 
debating. <laughs> is is that <laughs> is that accurate? I, th- I think so. I think what people underestimate often is that in the printing process through offset printing, you actually get a lot of quality that comes through in the image that you wouldn't expect. So it's not the same as reading it on screen or printing it out on an inkjet printer. So I think that's one of the huge like sort of huge learning curves I think a lot of artists experience image size and scale yeah because if you if you obviously if you print it smaller you think that you're going to lose detail but often not the opposite happens but you're so quite quite pleasantly surprised that sort of that scale is maintained mm-hmm. we work quite a lot in the studio we, I mean every time I'm working on a book I'm printing out thousands of pieces of paper from a crappy you know <laughs> office printer um, mm-hmm. just to understand if the scale is right and that's also that goes for text as well as image just to mm-hmm. make sure things are read properly I think both Jess and Ray's um, books play with scale a lot and we have a lot of kind of images that are you know completely oh my God, <laughs> completely sort of take over the page um, yeah, and others that are, rush. Yeah. yeah and others that are very small in the corner yeah. and we're constantly yeah. sort of moving through the book and I think both books uh, kind of play around with this in order to, to engross the reader and pull the reader in. I think if you have an image small on the page and a huge amount of white space around it, you're solely focused on that one image and it, that negative mm-hmm. space is sort of drawing you in. Whereas other books don't need that. Other books kind of are served by the repetition of the image in the same place and that there's that movement within the, dip, the variety of images almost or... I think it just completely depends on the content and what you're trying to make the reader feel. Um, both Jess and Ray's books are very sort of emotive and mm-hmm. powerful books and they really want you to feel something. Yep. Not that other books don't, but just in a very different way to... No, they're very emotional books. Yeah, very yeah. emotional. And I think, yeah, that's what scale helps with there. Um, but I, I don't think it's something that I necessarily... Every time I look at a book, I go, oh, this is a challenge and I need to kind of solve it. It seems, a lot of the time, seems very automatic of how it should be. I think with Jess's book, there was no question that that it was going to be any other way. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. It seemed intuitive that it would play with scale and that that it would be looser. And when, when in those early discussions with Michael and with Jess, it was always that there would be a loose grid and that... And that it wouldn't be formulaic and, and repetitive almost, that it would have this motion and movement. Yeah, so I never questioned that. <laughs> Do you ever worry about that sort of fine line between designing and over-designing? Yes. Uh, to a certain extent, yes. I think when you overthink a book or overthink what the book should be, yes, I think you can run into that. But I think the key is to always consider that it is the artist's book and it is the artist's voice. And I think the minute that you start to see too much of a hand of the designer, that's where you're walking that line of, is this the designer's book or is this the artist's book? Um, Mm -hmm. And once you start to see that, I think that's, yeah, you're in a danger zone. I think the designer's there to facilitate the form that the artist wants and, and steer you know, artists don't always know what's best, but usually they're on the right track and that's usually why they're doing their, what they love. Like, so I think it's just kind of facilitating that and I, I like to think that I often bring 
production and sort of uh, technical knowledge more about how paper works and how the printing will be and I like to think that I help inform that side of things um, but I try and yeah try and facilitate the artist's voice. I know some of these specific sort of questions may not be entirely easy to explain but <laughs> let's go forward anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> you talked about coded paper versus uncoded paper I do think it's worth sort of getting into some of this a little bit mm. because, you know, a lot of people really just don't know this stuff. Mm. So can you talk a little bit more about the differences and the pluses and minuses and also using a spot varnish and versus not mm -hmm. heavier paper, those sorts of real nitty gritty stuff. Nitty gritty. My, my favorite nitty gritty. I Yeah, the difference between... So an uncoated stock is uh, a bit like your photo, your sort of your paper that runs through your uh, printer in the office or at home. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, quite porous and has quite an open structure, and meaning that when you print ink on it, it absorbs into it very quickly and very easily. Uh, and when this comes to printing images, it means that your image is often a lot flatter and uh, a lot kind of, uh, you see that porous sort of texture on top with a coated stock uh, it's being milled in a particular way to give it a, uh, a a layer on top that then the ink sits on uh, so instead of absorbing down into the structure of the paper it sits on top and dries there within uncoated and coated there are other ranges um, you can have a more uncoated paper a very very porous paper and a very smooth coated paper uh, uncoated paper sorry that that doesn't absorb as much. With a, a spot gloss varnish, you can only do this on a coated stock. And what that does is it, it lifts the image out of the paper even more so, so you get this difference mm -hmm. of uh, sort of reflectivity. You can get a varnish uh, in gloss or matte, but I, we barely, uh, rarely use matte uh, just because it's counterintuitive. I love a good varnish, I'm not gonna <laughs> I do too. I think it does depend on the work and that's yeah, sort of, that's knowing sure. where it's necessary and where it's not. And mm -hmm. I have a, a huge love for uncoated paper, but it's always a difficulty to convince people that that's the right decision. With uncoated paper, you can print it different ways to sort of reduce this effect of the, the porous nature uh, and the absorption. But um, generally, most photo books are printed on a coated stock with a varnish yeah, and that's what that was the case for both Jess and Ray's books. How do you? So you've 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 designed the book and you've you've figured out what the materials are going to be. How do you decide on what printer to actually use? So you're, you know, always flying from here to there, different to different printers. Like, yeah, how, how's how's that determined? At the moment, it's slightly different to how it was in previous years. Um, yeah because of two reasons, because of COVID and because of paper shortages, which are sort of mm. striking the industry really hard, particularly in Europe, but I think also in America. Um, so at the moment, a lot of it is just based on availability. But generally, for me, the projects are, choose, are chosen to go with printers based on if they have any speciali specialities in that type of project um, and for that mm -hmm. type of printing or if there's a particular type of binding that's maybe more difficult to do in Italy than in, in Denmark or in Germany. 
And then also some projects require maybe a particular flexibility. So particularly with black and white printing, I find that that needs more patience. Sometimes you can spend four hours, five hours on the first sheet ready to print, making modifications, changing it just to get the right sensibility. And sometimes you know that a relationship with a printer that, that will work better, they're happy to waste four or five hours getting that to that point. Other printers mm-hmm. are more like, you need to move quickly, you need to sign off on the sheet in 15 minutes, you need to be, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I think, yeah, it's just those relationships and understanding what projects suit them better. Every printer has the same, most printers have the same kind of capacity of what they can print. It's more just about those relationships, I think. So anyone sort of self-publishing can go to a printer, they all have the same access to paper. They all usually print with the same kind of uh, LPI or same kind of dots per line. Um, It's just then about their relationship with you and how flexible they are to make changes or answer questions or, you know, I think with any, anything in the arts work, it's all about those relationships you have. And are are most books now, let's say MacBooks being done old school or digitally? Old school? What's old school? (laughs) What is this old school? The right way. (laughs) The right way. Everything's printed offset, um, which I I think has been the way it has been for for, since that technology was developed. Um, We have print runs that are high enough to warrant offset printing. You usually have digital printing for under 500 copies. Right. Um, so sort of just by means of scale, it just makes more sense to print offset. But it does also give you a lot more control. And it's the part of the process I love the most is being on press and making adjustments and talking to the printers. And it feels like actually not stuck behind a desk and sort of playing around and in design. It actually feels like the, the hands-on work, which I just love. It's so good. Well, people who have never been to a big printing house um, facility don't know how thrilling they are. I mean, it, it's, I've said this occasionally to people, and you sort of get a blank look. <laughs> it's because it is a little hard to imagine, but mm. they're really exciting places. Mm. I mean, the machinery is massive. Mm. It's making a racket, but not in a way that is upsetting <laughs> somehow. It's like, it's like some weird, strange rhythm section or, mm. or you know. And then there's the smell of ink, Mm. which is really wonderful. Mm. And the smell of all sorts of other things that are needed to bring it all together. Mm. Um, Yeah, since since COVID started, I actually have been living above the printing company. And every night, they print 24 hours. And every night, when you go to sleep and you can hear the whirring, the sound of the machines going and going and you wake up to the noise and you open your door and you can smell the ink you can smell the paper it's sort of uh, a strange experience to sort of live and work and (laughs) habitate in that kind of situation it's it's brilliant but also slightly hard to separate from (laughs) when to switch off sometimes but it is really exciting. Mm. And the people who work there are like these just incredible pros, mm. right? They, a lot of the folks who work at these old offset mm. printing houses have been there for decades and are yeah. just such, they're so knowledgeable. And 
Um, you do have to be careful where you sit down because there's powder everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'll let you explain that. Yeah, I always wear black and I'm always covered in powder. <laughs> no, they, they, it's there for a purpose that they layer it between each sheet, especially when you're printing with a varnish because that varnish is sticky then if you just put it straight between the next sheet it, there's a risk that it could stick so they spray a little bit of powder between each one yeah and that powder goes everywhere it so does yeah. <laughs> everything be, is covered be, be mindful of what you what you wear exactly um, <laughs> but somehow it's so much fun you don't mind um, yeah it's so much fun yeah so one thing we sort of just went over really quickly but i, I want to just um tease out a little bit is that the setup for offset is so intensive that it doesn't make sense to do small runs. Mm. Um, it's just not financially mm. feasible. And the reason people often do use digital presses is for small runs because there's not as much setup. And I don't mm. know how in the weeds we want to get, but <laughs> <laughs> um, the setup for offset printing is extremely complicated. Mm. And um, so it's, yeah, you don't want to be doing short runs that, that way. Yeah, pe people do and, and galleries do occasionally if they have that sort of financial capacity. Mm -hmm. But uh, for sort of the everyday Joe who's making a photo book, it, it doesn't, it's not financially logical. Yeah, there's, no. there's ink, there's plates, there's paper, there's just so much that goes into that, that first setup that, yeah, it's just not logical to do it for a small run. So what happens when an artist comes in and you guys, you and Michael love the work and you, this is an artist you love and um, you want to do the book, but the artist's concept is just no bueno? Um. <laughs> Phrasing for this, yeah. yeah. How, how does that how does that go down? Um, hmm. Do you hide? Do you go? <laughs> I turn off my emails. Yeah, Michael, uh, you're off. you're you're off. You're call off. me. Don't call me. I think it, it does depend on when the artist comes to us with the project. I think some artists come to us and and we agree with everything and we agree completely with their vision. Sometimes it, it is actually just perfect and. There's nothing really that we need to do other than advise on which paper to use or, you know, the, the printing process. And then there are those times when someone will come to us with an idea that we go, what? <laughs> this is strange. Or that we just don't completely agree on a certain aspect of it. And I think that's when either technically it's not going to work and it's then just about explaining to them that this won't work because of X, Y, Z. Um, and then usually that is a way to convince people. I think knowing that there are, you know, binding limitations, printing limitations, just, you know, technical tolerances that exist in a world that is physically, you know, books are physically made by physical human beings. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a technical explanation to get people to sort of veer away from a particular idea. Um, and then, yeah, I try and think of it always as a collaboration and that, there has to be a little bit of give and take and maybe it means saying, okay, well, we don't really like this idea, but we'll go with it in this form, but we'll, we like this other idea and sort of just understanding where that those compromises are on both sides. I think 
often if people are so wedded in, to an idea, it's usually for a very emotional reason. There's, it's usually not just a flippant design choice on their part. So it's right. just trying to understand that. And then there are other scenarios where we don't generally work with external graphic designers, um, but sometimes people have friends or you know people in their mm. circles who have given them feedback on a particular treatment and that's when it's sort of like hang on are you working with mac or are you working with someone externally and that's where that's uh, right calling the boss kind of michael <laughs> please help here right um yeah but generally we don't run into that i think the, the most common thing is just technical tolerances you know even just the other day working on a cover with an artist and we've got a text typography over the top of a, a tipped in image on the cover and just knowing that mm-hmm. that tip in of the image is done by a ha- by hand a person is gluing mm-hmm. that in by hand so that's not going to always be in the perfect position no one could ever put it in the perfect position you know 2000 right. times so knowing that they will it will probably move by 3 to 5 mil and just compensating for that and making sure the design allows for that movement and it's still you know the design will still look okay so i think that's the most common sort of um disagreement or you know, cause of tension is just ironing out, you know, technical limitations, I think. Have you ever been in a position where you've, you or Michael have gotten a PDF or a maquette in from an artist that's just so, the work is great, the photography is great, but, but the whole concept is bonkers. And, and one of you has, said, just let me just give this a, a shot and gone in and redid it the way you see it yes. and, and presented it to the artist and said, what do you think about this? I mean, has that ever happened? That, that kind of just trust me, let me give it one pass and then you can tell me to go to hell. But here's what I'm thinking. I think it kind of actually depends on the artist's expectations. I think some artists come saying, this is how it is and this is how it has to be. And that's when you go, oh, okay. And others come saying, this is what I have, but maybe you guys can make it better. I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, these are the two mindsets. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, yes, the, the design changes radically to what it originally started as. And it's about knowing how far. It, it's actually often about just kind of human skills of understanding what people want and how far you think that they could be pushed in an opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And knowing... You know, they're going to be really firm and they will really want a hardcover book, for instance, and, and thinking, well, I'm going to push the design inside radically, so I won't change it to a paperback. Because if I do that and that, then they're going to go, they're going to throw, throw all the dummies out of the pram and go, this is a complete disaster. But if you mm-hmm. kind of understand where you maintain and where you can sort of push it in a different direction, I think, yeah, it's just trying to read people and understand where that line is, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think this job is so much about like reading and understanding people and artists and just, you know, using Jess as an example, understanding the sensibilities of what they want that then can speak through in the design. Yeah, I mean, I I, I assume if you can say to someone, even if they're very, you know, they're sort of have closed down Mm. their mind, they think they got it right. Mm. But if you can say to someone, listen, we think there's 
we think there's more we can do here. We think there's changes we can make, but we we know what you want. We know what exactly. you are go- going for. We know what what it is you are trying to express. Give us a chance to, you know, get in there and tinker and and figure out a way of getting to that mm-hmm. that may be more effective, but will say what you want to say. I guess if you can give someone that comfort, exactly. They'll, they'll go along with you. Yeah, and I think that that extends also the printing because I mean, since COVID, barely anyone has come to oversee the printing. It's just been me. And I think in the beginning, mm-hmm. that was quite terrifying for me. Not that I hadn't had, by that point, three, almost three years of experience, but just to have that full responsibility. And so now, you know, ever since that started, I'd have sort of a long call or a call catch up with the artists before I went on press to say, you know, what kind of sensibility do you want for your images? Do you prefer them more cold, more warm, heavier, you know, lots of varnish, you know, just trying to understand also what the, the aim is. Is it, to, is it for the images to feel light and, and kind of airy or is it to, for them to feel very dark and, you know, closed down and you, the reader has to peer into the book to sort of see what they're reading? Just to understand not from a technical point of view, like design as well, not like no grid, no, you know, it's more just understanding the sensibility of what that final object is meant to be. And then translating that into into printing to, to stand on press and add more magenta or take out sign or push the contrast or whatever that might be. Are the yeah. artists giving you um, prints to, to like match prints to use? Yeah, it depends. It's sort of half-half um, with Jess and with Ray. Yes, both of them provided match prints. Um, they're inkjet match prints, so they they help, but they are obviously a very different substrate and a different uh, printing yep. process, yes. but they help as a guide. And then others, you know, especially if it's their first book, they often won't have match prints, um, and we'll do a proofing process system with them and, and try and understand... Uh, yeah get to some kind of match print to use on press Mm -hmm. but then yeah when you get there trying to understand if it needs more contrast and if yeah just the sensibility of of the printing process which isn't really translated in a proof or translated on screen it's just and also often you have to compromise right exactly (laughs) yeah in order to get one image exactly perfect you might lose a little something in another image because of the way exactly yes people don't realize that things are on big sheets they're Mm. not like individual pages exactly yeah on the big sheets you're usually printing two or three images in a row vertically and you can only make changes vertically. So you might have one image that needs more magenta, another image that needs more yellow, and another image that needs more blue. And then you're just having to try and make a compromise that works for all three. Mm-hmm. And so within those images, it's really important to know what the main focus is and what's the most important thing. Is it really important that the sky is a cold, yellowy blue, or is it more important that the person's skin tone is kind of more natural looking and has more pink in it like it's trying to understand what's the subject of of that particular image and where you can maybe compromise elsewhere in the image in order to save you know to make sure that each each of those three images stays uh convincing or not sure Mm -hmm. that's yeah stays uh readable yeah 
This is the challenge. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I, I think that people really don't know what goes into, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I'm I'm so happy that, you know, we're getting to talk about this because <laughs> I, 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 I think it's really a mystery to, mm -hmm. to a lot of people. And as the photo book market, the photo book world, the ecosystem has just become so thrilling and so dominant in a way that I personally am really happy about. I, I think it's the way it should be. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it's important that people understand what it takes to, to pull off this, these little jewels, these little, you know, miracles. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, on that note, why don't we wrap up? Thank you so much for hanging out and, and going over all this with me and with the folks who listen and for um, putting up with my schedule changes, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> well, um, thank you. It's been, yeah, it's great to kind of get, like you say, it's sort of such a black box type of uh, mm -hmm. industry and, you know, you only know once you're kind of in it and you don't really right. know what happens otherwise. So I think it's always uh, also quite limited to a few number of people who work in it. And it's uh, been a pleasure to share some hot tips or some little bits of knowledge, um, people listening. Well, thank you, Morgan. And then also, I'm, as you know, such a huge fan. So for me, it's just been really thrilling getting to hang out with you. And I look forward to doing it in person someday. Um, yes. <laughs> And until then, be well, stay safe, and, um, and thanks again. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.